Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Welcome to another Thursday of political talk. And it is Thursday, September 11th. And uh, September 11th obviously means a lot of things to all of us here in New York. And uh, me personally, it was a, a very, very dark day. Happened to have uh, been there when when it happened. Uh, so I just want to start off with a quick clip, clip to remind everybody what happened on that day. And uh, I was executive assistant of Rummy. Uh, cue the clip, please. So that's the real live feed from the Hudson Dispatcher from September 11th. And uh, I may have mentioned this before last year or when we talked uh, about the opening of the 9-11 Museum that occurred back in May, which I went to attend. And I highly recommend that everybody, everybody out there try and go to the museum. It's easy to get reservations. You make an online reservation and you can go. And uh, it's it's very well done, very well put together. But uh, I was on the uh, Verrazano Bridge headed towards Staten Island. I was actually headed towards Philadelphia at the time. And uh, when this transmission came out and I was able to look over my shoulder and actually see, not the plane, obviously, that had already happened. But I was able to see the smoke billowing from the Twin Towers at the time. Being a solo member, I turned around and made my way to Lower Manhattan, and it was a very dark day. That's all I could say. It's just, uh, it's a very painful thing. But we ha- all have to remember, we all have to remember what happened to us, to us as Americans, to us as New Yorkers, to us uh, that want to live in freedom, and some very ill intentions, some very evil people uh, smoked out the lives of so many. And every year, I make it a point to listen to the names being read. I think it's a, a very powerful thing that's being done. It takes hours and hours and hours just to read all the names of those that were killed on September 11th. And we shouldn't forget that. We should keep that in mind. And I know, and I've said this a couple times, you know, that we, we try and talk about politics here as sport a little bit, but it really matters when you think about it. It really matters so much. Yeah, uh, this week was primary day. And it was an incredibly low turnout amongst Democrats. Maybe people feel that it wasn't, there wasn't a lot at stake. Uh, there were local races, different races, but it matters who we have in office. It matters the people that are elected. Politics matters. Government matters. When we want it, we want it to function. We want it to function well. We want it to function on our behalf. It matters that we participate. And the worst thing is that you give up, that people give up their own their own rights, their own choice by not by not exercising their right to vote in every election. And yes, I've said it, said it last week. We have too many elections here in New York. There's no question about it. You can vote maybe six, seven, eight times a year, which is really preposterous. However, it's important to exercise that right to vote. And as if you see that if fewer people show up, your vote is actually that much more important. So let's just kick off the show. We are post-primary. We've got a great show coming up. Got a couple great guests. Ozzy Paper is going to be joining us from Capital New York. <clears throat> Ozzy, uh, very knowledgeable about everything going on in the political world here uh, in New York and is going to unpack some of the great primary races. We're going to talk about the statewide primary uh, for the governor and lieutenant governor. We're also going to have Menasha Shapiro. Uh, former Bloomberg staffer, former Cuomo staffer. It's going to talk to us a little bit about Cuomo and the Jewish vote. And then we're going to wade a little bit back into an issue that we've talked about in the past. Uh, that is the East Ramapo School District. 
uh, back in the news again with a very interesting article, an interesting take from Tablet Magazine. Badya Unger Sargon is going to be joining us uh, to try and give us a different perspective on whether the whether the media gets it right or whether the media gets it wrong when it comes to looking at the Eastern Post School District or maybe even looking at issues involving the Orthodox community or the Hasidic community in general. So let's, uh, you know, let's take a look. First of all, first and foremost, as you, if you don't know, uh, Governor Cuomo did win his primary. So we'll leave that. He did have a primary. Some of you may not have voted. Some of you may have said, well, it doesn't really matter that much, but he had a primary against a woman named Zephyr Teachout and, uh, he won. He won quite handily. However, the pundits out there say that there was a lot of dissatisfaction with Cuomo. Zephyr Teacher won about 35%. Cuomo won about 60%. The rest went to a candidate named Randy Credico or Credico, a comedian. And uh, the turnout, as I said, very low. It actually dipped below the 2002 Democratic gubernatorial primary, which, if for those of you out there keeping score, Cuomo was – also a candidate. However, he wasn't a declared candidate. He had actually pulled out of that race against Carmel Call in advance of the primary. Now, more people voted in that primary than this primary, which is very interesting given the fact that this would have seemed to be a hotly disputed race. 500, according to unofficial numbers, 531,205 Democrats voted in the primary, which is lower than the 661,296 who voted in 2010. And then there was no competitive race for governor. So uh, another another number you should know just with the last one that was viewed as competitive, 2006, it was a, viewed a, as a competitive Democratic primary. Elliot Spitzer really absolutely beat back Tom Swazi, who was viewed at the time Nassau County executive, viewed as being formidable. 762,000 or 763,000 Democrats voted. Spitzer got 82 percent of the vote. And that is 20 points better than Cuomo did. So here to understand it all, we have, as I mentioned, Ozzy Pabra from Capital New York, author of a daily tip sheet, which if you're interested in politics and you're interested in New York, you should definitely get. Ozzy, welcome back to Spin Glass. Thanks for having me. So Ozzy, uh, let's just uh, start with the top. Let's just start with the top of the ticket. Why didn't people say Andrew Cuomo didn't campaign? He didn't engage. He didn't really wasn't really motivated to get involved in this race until the very end. Why not? Well, if you're Andrew Cuomo, you had more than enough money, you had a huge lead in the polls, and you're being challenged by someone who wasn't well-known, who was underfunded, and there really was no, uh, politically, no upside in him engaging with a candidate who really needed the attention of, of direct engagement in, in order to draw attention to their candidacy. So for Andrew Cuomo... There really wasn't much at stake there for him. There, there really wasn't much for him to gain, shall we say, politically. He could have won this by ignoring her, which, which was sort of the strategy. He only adjusted that when it became clear that his running mate, Kathy Hochul, was vulnerable to a challenge. She was less known and she was more conservative, uh, which was a harder obstacle for Democratic primary voters to accept. So she was the vulnerability, and that is what caused him to engage at all with the challenge from the left. So it's interesting. So what you're saying is he was basically willing to concede the 35% his effort teach out. It says, take your 35%. I'm not going to lose anyway. I'm just not going to engage you. Right. If you're Andrew Cuomo, you, you know, there's been a long, uncomfortable relationship between Andrew Cuomo and the left of the party. And you could say that about any, you know, you could say that almost about any, uh, Democrat who ascends to the upper echelons of politics, that there's always going to be some contingent within their own party that is unhappy with something they've done, right? Like, the more people you represent, the greater the chances that you're going to anger somebody. Um, remember in the run-up to 2008, there were a lot of anti-war activists who really were taking a knock at leading Democratic candidates, and it was Barack Obama who sort of came in as the anti-war candidate, and that's really what started giving him a foothold in that contest. Here, you have Andrew Cuomo, who helped pass same-sex marriage in New York, a, a, a big win for a social progressives, but he had sort of turned his back on 
economic progressives. He really had aligned himself with Republicans and, and, and the more moderate wing uh, of the party when it comes to fiscal issues. And more and more progressives are defining themselves, not so much on social issues, because that's being taken for granted. That's being considered the floor. It's really on the economic issues. Are you, are you standing with Occupy Wall Street? Do you want to tax the rich? Do you want to reform uh, the, the income tax in New York and have it be more progressive and have people who earn more get taxed more? Those are really the issues that progressives are sort of defining themselves. And Andrew Cuomo has long been uncomfortable and been resistant to that uh, sort of um, agenda. So th- that's a large part of where this opposition was coming from. And then you have the issue of ethics. The New York Times had done a very lengthy story about what he had done in relationship to the Moreland Commission. Uh, Pri Bahara has made a lot of noise questioning the governor's role in this. And that happens to, you know, ethics happens to be the specialty of Zephyr Teachout and, and what she teaches in her law class. So those two sort of combined um, forces helped uh, establish this, this, like, nook of opposition to Cuomo that he wasn't going to win anyway. So he figured to see that point, get past this election without too many, you know, videos that will live on in perpetuity, take the small hit, move on, and, and focus your attention on the general election and really run out the score there. Okay, very interesting. So I guess it's a, a kind of a tale of two elections here. Uh, it always is, right? You have your primary strategy, your general election strategy. And I think most people out there think that Cuomo is well-positioned now for the general. He takes his lumps from the left, but in the end, he's still standing. But what about the, the interesting way in which the primary vote laid out geographically in the state, right? Cuomo did very well in – the boroughs, not Manhattan in particular, uh, uh, did almost not so well from, you know, from my analysis in the suburbs, uh, did very well in Western New York, possibly because he's spent a lot of time himself and his running mate. But if you look in the Hudson Valley and the North Country in those areas, less populous by a lot. But if you look in all those counties, uh, he lost a lot of counties, particularly for a sitting governor. And I think, you know, you wonder about the name recognition. He lost pretty much to somebody who was totally unknown in all these areas. So if you're Rob Astorino and you're relatively unknown as well, do you say, well, you know, there's an opening for me. Rob Astorino maybe concedes the city. You know, he says, I can't win in the city. But in the suburbs, Andrew Cuomo didn't do so well. Turnout was very poor. Uh, and in a lot of the state, I can win. And if I do well in those areas, perhaps there's a, a path to victory. Well, that's a, so usually in politics, the idea is my enemy's enemy is my friend. Here, I don't know if that's the case. People that were unhappy with Cuomo uh, for progressive reasons, progressive economic reasons, I don't know if, if they're going to see in Astorino an ally. I mean, the, the people who wanted, you know, the, like the pro-occupy, pro-tax-the-rich uh, contingent, are they going to look at Astorino and say, that's my guy? I, I sort of doubt it. The, the people who want to see a ban on fracking, are they going to turn to Rob Astorino and say, that's my guy? I sort of doubt it. When, when you know, you sort of win in politics when you get the right opponent. And in, in Astorino, Cuomo has someone that he feels very comfortable running against. Andrew Cuomo is pro-choice. It's, it's my understanding that Rob Astorino is not. Andrew Cuomo supported same-sex marriage. It's my understanding that Rob Astorino does not. If Andrew Cuomo gets to shape this debate about social issues. In, you know, he picks up a lot of that support in New York City that, that might have trailed off in the primary, and it, it, it sort of takes out the oxygen from those on the left who wanted to send a signal to him in the primary and, and are really not going to see a viable choice in the general election. It's not clear that Rob Astorino is going to pick up the you know, Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, as, as Howard Dean would say, and, and, and find eligible votes for himself there. Well, perhaps those voters stay home because they're not interested. They don't want to vote for Cuomo. They don't want to vote for Astorino. They just don't. They they don't come out. Meaning that the more progressive people, and you know, you're, you're we're looking at turnout in some of these counties at five percent or even below, uh, which is uh, which is even low by primary standards, which makes it interesting. But let's let's skip ahead also to the lieutenant governor's race because I, I we got a lot to cover and not a lot of time is. 
the Wu Hoko race, as you mentioned, which is the the two lieutenant governor uh, candidates now, uh, lieutenant Gov- nominee, lieutenant governor nominee Kathy Hogel, former congresswoman from Erie County, from the Buffalo, from Buffalo, and who served in Congress uh, less than one term, uh, won a special election. So as you said, she was considered to be vulnerable. So they po- started pulling out all the stops for for her, and uh, and her opponent Tim Wu. Uh, actually was very vocal in his loss and uh, took a big, big shot at none other than New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, on this. Uh, give you his quote. There was an effort to elect a progressive to lieutenant governor office, and the greatest impediment to that was Mayor Bill de Blasio. Now, it ha- is, is Mayor Bill de Blasio the darling of the left still, or is he now uh, a little bit viewed with suspicion on the left? Well, it you know, it was a curious thing to see the progressive mayor not really supporting the most progressive candidate in this race. But all along, a lot of people who followed Bill de Blasio's career have always said he's a progressive, but he's also a realist. And to go up against the city governor, who is in all likelihood going to win, politically, there really was not much of an upshot in de Blasio throwing his support for someone he might, who might, who we might agree with on policy, but what would it get him politically to oppose a sitting governor who he has to deal with for the next four or eight years? And, and, and also someone he's known personally for over 20 years. So one of the things that, that de Blasio did that, that, that I found, that, that I found fascinating was he repeatedly referred to Zephyr Teachout and to Tim Wu as people who were unknown. So, what that enabled him to do was, A, not engage them on policy, since he would probably wind up agreeing with them more than disagreeing with them, but he also uh, showed a, a seed of doubt about who they are, and that was their biggest vulnerability. You know, and, and in New York, you know, we've seen a number of times uh, all elected officials surprise us with some of their behavior that we weren't expecting. Elliot Spitzer, Anthony Weiner, uh, Chris Lee, uh, the list goes on and on. And... The idea of referring to someone as unknown, even if you might agree with them, it, 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 was, a, it was a way to dismiss and minimize uh, a vulnerability for the progressive mayor and his would-be ally that they were creating this progressive challenge to, the, to Cuomo. It minimized them, it didn't engage them on policy, and it sort of reminded people, you know, you should probably vet these guys a little bit more before electing them. So his idea was just to kind of throw doubt to people and say, well, you know, we really can't entrust the state with these people i i my heart goes with them but my brain doesn't interesting interesting way to to right. go about and, that let's just uh transition to some of the local primaries and there were some very interesting local primaries out there uh at, at, and particularly those that involved the idc the independent democratic conference uh versus regular democrats the regular democrats had gone in two races looked to take out with using oliver capel uh, former city councilman, former attorney general, former assemblyman, uh, to take out Senator Jeff Klein, the chief of the IDC, as well as former city controller and former city councilman John Liu to take out Tony Avella. Both of those efforts failed, and uh, which is which is interesting. I think a lot of people thought, uh, well, maybe Klein Klein will probably survive, but a lot of people thought that Liu was going to topple Tony Avella, at least uh, in the circles that I speak to. What happened in those races? Uh, well, so, so um, let's go to the Tony Vela John Liu race. John Liu had faced a huge obstacle. Uh, remember, he came out of the mayor's race, scandal-scarred, tainted, uh, underfunded, and, and really he, he faced a tremendous uh, challenge and knock to his credibility because of uh, a federal inquiry into his fundraising activities. He emerged from that as defiance, as proclaiming his innocence, and when he challenged Tony Avella, who had left the Democratic conference to align with, with the IDC and Republicans, he found a way to get back in step, not only with progressives, but, but with the county Democratic organization that had abandoned him in the mayor's race. And the district, actually, uh, if you look at the demographics, it is not as favorable to John Liu as was his council district. This uh, Senate district was overwhelmingly white. There were fewer Asians and minorities, which arguably could have favored him uh, in a race. This was a district that had elected numerous times 
a Republican, uh, you know, on the council level and on the state level. This is someone who, uh, this is a district that had seen Tony Avella, you know, oust David um, uh, Frank Padavan. So it's a district that, that knew Padavan that wasn't uh, demographically as favorable as one that, you know, you would argue John, John Lee would want. And he still had the specter of that uh, fundraising scandal hanging over his head, which John, which uh, Tony Avella was able to, to hang around to. Very interesting. And now let's just uh, go to the interesting races that included sitting uh, – the interesting primaries that included sitting state senators who were under indictment. We mentioned them last week, three under federal indictment, one upstate Republican, the deputy majority leader, uh, Tom Libis from the Binghamton area. He run in a walk. It really wasn't much of a race because he's more of an institution up in the Binghamton area. But the two that were interesting is former city councilman Leroy Comrie and uh, deputy borough president Leroy Comrie, uh, soundly defeated former majority leader, uh, and sitting state senator Malcolm Smith. Mm-hmm. And we also had, uh, the, the on the flip side, which is I think more uh, interesting out there, uh, sitting state senator John Sampson, also a former majority leader, defeated all his challengers, got over fifty percent of the vote, and uh, I think a lot of people and the the wine share of endorsements went to his challengers, and John Sampson managed to uh, managed to stave off all challengers, and actually we have a great clip from the county chairman who supported John Sampson that we're going to play. Really quickly, I think that you took, which is uh, which is really, uh, I think, fantastic, uh, uh, a little fantastic portrait of local politics. Uh, of Rami, cue the clip. Okay, slightly raunchy there. Right. Uh, uh, but I think that's Frank Sedio there. Uh, set the stage for us, Ozzy. Sure. So. John Stanson had been indicted earlier uh, for the second time. Uh, first, he was accused of funneling money to um, from foreclosures he was overseeing uh, uh, at um, surrogate court to fund his campaign for district attorney, I think back in 2005. Then he was accused of lying to the FBI about secretly owning part of a liquor store, which, which he was trying to help with some type of uh, tax situation, and, and not disclosing that on his... Uh, State financial disclosure forms. So he had not one but two uh, accusations of impropriety hanging over his head. Then comes this election. He was being challenged by someone who is uh, an organizer from 1199, the very powerful healthcare workers union. That person got an endorsement from Andrew Cuomo. Remember, Andrew Cuomo facing his own questions about ethics, found an opportunity to sort of bolster his pro-good government ethics credentials by endorsing someone against John Sampson. And then uh, 1199, the ally of Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio, got his endorsement. So a lot of these forces were lining up against John Sampson. What he had done was secure the support of the local Democratic uh, organization and that leader, Frank Sedio. And they framed this as local control. They're not going to let outsiders come in and dictate who governs. Uh, John Sampson had later said he was offended that his close allies at 1199, at Kevin Finnegan in particular, and other people who he had worked with for years, abruptly turned his back on him without even giving him the opportunity to explain or, or, to, or to give his side of the story, as, as he argued. So, and remember, the, the, the county organization has very, it's very much built on the idea of loyalty. You protect your incumbents. And if you don't protect your incumbents, what kind of organization can you expect to build going forward? So for a lot of different reasons, they rallied around Samson, the 59th Assembly District, which is the heart of the Thomas Jefferson Club, where this effort was based, uh, that is a majority of that Senate district that John Sampson was running in. That's also a district that Bill de Blasio has never won. Uh, that's a point of fact that Frank Sedio had, had reminded me of. So this was a district that isn't necessarily prone to a Bill de Blasio sort of message. This uh, Thomas Jefferson Club is incredibly a well-oiled machine when it comes to politics. They got out the vote. John Sampson, a well-known name against the 1199-back candidate, and two other people, and he was just able to become, uh, he, he just ran a much better operation. 1199 was sort of spread thin. They did the best they could. This just wasn't as high-profile a race where it was going to galvanize as much attention, and, and voters just went with the, with the name they knew. Very interesting. So I think that there's a little bit of a 
parallel universe going on, uh, or I say two parallel type of power centers uh, in the Democratic pro- uh, establishments, or I guess the actually, I apologize, the Democratic establishment seems to be fighting back against the uh, Union slash Working Families Party alliance. You actually saw that as well in the Park Slope slash Brownstone Brooklyn seat uh, with uh, Joanne Simon fighting off a challenge from Bill de Blasio backed uh, Peter Sikora, who is a who was backed by and Bill de Blasio. That's his home turf right there. So you saw that in another race as well in the in this, you know, in the same uh, in, in the same type of setup there with the Brooklyn establishment kind of fighting or the Brooklyn party, the party regulars, if you will, fighting back against the union backed and working families party people. Well, over there was, was very interesting. Joanne Simon was a district leader for many years. She had fought against. Uh, the, the Democratic establishment and the Democratic Party when it was led by Vito Lopez. And what was amazing was that someone from the Working Families Party referred to Joanne Simon as part of the, quote, Brooklyn machine, which struck many people as wildly inaccurate and unfair. And if anything, you could argue that the Working Families Party is the new machine and not the, Demo- and, and not the Brooklyn Democratic Party. And what was amazing was that Joanne Simon was an early advocate for de Blasio within the Democrat, within the Brooklyn Democratic Party. And here they found an opportunity, uh, I think, de Blasio and, and the Union allies to install one of their own people. And Joanne Simon um, had won several times in that area as district leader, very contested races. And somebody the other night joked with me that the first thing Joanne Simon should do after the race is certified is that she should send a thank you note to Vito Lopez. Because if it had not been for those contested races, if it had not been for the challenges she got from the Democratic Party when she was on the outs, would she have had as vigorous a campaign and would she have touched as many voters and gotten her name out as widely as she had in the run-up to this election? Arguably not. So those tough races that she survived earlier arguably set the, set the, set the, the foundation for her victory earlier this week. Very interesting. It's amazing some of these micro races, how interesting they can be. And I guess it's, Sometimes when some of the upper echelon elected officials stick their nose in, i.e. the mayor and the governor and others, they're not they're not necessarily as welcome as you certainly heard from that Frank Sedio clip right. as one would uh, would feel otherwise. And you know, all politics is local out there. There's no question. Yeah. You see it in spades so many times that the local issues and the the door-to-door shoe leather type of campaigning is really what's so important there on the local level. Ozzy Pebro from Capital New York, thanks for uh, reviewing the primaries with us and giving uh, us your expertise on this issue once again here on Spin Class. Thanks for having me. And this is Spin Class. Uh, we're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and uh, left out that intro uh, from the beginning just because of the 9-11 uh, remembrance, if you will. And we have on the line Menasha Shapiro. Menasha is with Tusk Strategies, former Bloomberg campaign staffer and former Cuomo campaign staffer. And here to kind of take a look uh, at the overall primary with us, as well as uh, some interesting facets of the Jewish vote at the same time. Menasha, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well, Menasha. So let's just uh, jump right into it. You, you heard a little bit of the commentary from Ozzy out there. We we, ana- we analyzed Cuomo and his performance, and Ozzy's uh, feeling is that Cuomo did just enough. He didn't really need to do more. He's well positioned for the general. Who cares that he lost all those counties? Who cares that that for Teachout got 35%? Uh, Cuomo did fine. The objective is to win. Who cares? Um, well, I, he's right, and there's also a little bit that I'm going to disagree with over there. I mean, Andrew Cuomo doesn't write off anybody. He doesn't write off counties. He doesn't write off constituents. Um, and he certainly, you know, would understand, as Ozzy had pointed out, that there's a certain contingent of the Democratic Party that is not uh, so pleased with the way he is governed. That having been said, you, um, you know, you want to, you know, especially in your own party primary, want to, you know, run up the score as much as you possibly can. Um, and in that regard, if you were to look at the Jewish vote, you know, you have to, uh, when you assess the, the, uh, 
you know, the vote of a community, individual community. It's very hard when you're dealing with an election that's a foregone conclusion because everybody knew Andrew Cuomo was going to win. There's no margin of victory that and somebody could say, oh, they supplied for the governor. But when you look at what the Jewish vote provided for him in this primary, they gave him exactly what he needed. Because if we so be more tip, specific about that. Exactly if we were to tip the scales a little bit more, and for instance, you you made the distinction before about the you know the lieutenant governor and the uh, and the governor's race. If Zephyr Teachout came close to the percentage that Timothy Wu would have gotten, there would have been a problem for a governor. So the margin is important here. And if you were to really assess what the Jewish community in certain areas of the state gave the governor, they were able to provide him with the margin, sort of like the, the drop-dead point that he needed for this primary. Okay, very interesting. So, Manasha, let's talk for a second. Uh, my understanding and a lot of activists out there know and have talked about and people are very aware that in the closing of this primary season, Cuomo's people, though no, not Cuomo necessarily, Cuomo himself, were very active in pushing and hurting the – particularly in the Hasidic community at, in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, Borough Park – as well as upstate in uh, in New Square and KJ to go ahead and push their vote out and to produce significant margins for both Cuomo and uh, Kathy Hochul. And uh, it seems that, well, at least they're claiming, these individual communities are claiming big victories in getting the, victor- in getting the vote out. Uh, Kathy Hochul spent a lot of time in some of these areas, uh, probably a disproportional amount of time courting the orthodox jewish vote in the closing moments of the campaign so did it work uh, it looks like it did because when you were trying to measure the margin of victory that that he had and what these communities provided for him it certainly looks that way when you look at first let's look at the outer boroughs of the city let's look at brooklyn queens and, and the bronx if you look at brooklyn you alluded to before there were some you know local primaries that were driving turnout the people who usually get active in those kinds of primaries, especially Democratic primaries, are very much to the left of where Andrew Cuomo is. And all these people, regardless of who they were voting for locally, are turning out. So you would have expected a closer margin, say, a borough like Brooklyn, than, you know, the 65% that Andrew Cuomo pulled. And you can say that that was largely the result of the Jewish communities coming out. You look at the Bronx, where Andrew Cuomo, you know, there's the Jewish community is smaller than in Brooklyn, but there's a very large Jewish community in Riverdale. Andrew Cuomo made a point of standing with Israel uh, about a month ago. He flew, he flew to Israel. It was a number of weeks after Mayor Bloomberg did. He distinguished himself. You know, they both provided crucial support to Israel at a key time. And the Bronx Jewish community, largely an Israel voting community, also turned out en masse. I mean, it's almost like Zephyr Teacher didn't even run in Brooklyn if you were to look at the results over there. Run in the Bronx if you looked at the results over there. So yeah, clearly, it's, the margins are pretty incredible. Actually, just to, to give specific numbers, Andrew Cuomo won by 150,000 votes. 90,000 votes of that margin came from Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. Correct. That's 90,000 out of 150,000. Correct. All in all boroughs where there were a lot of primaries that were driving the teach out voter to the to the polls. So you really can look at those at at those three at those three counties in microcosm of how the Jewish community helped put Andrew Cuomo over the top. If okay, you want and to look at Nasha, one other let's look place, at Orange County for a second because Ar- yeah. we Go almost on. was a tie there. Andrew Cuomo won Orange County. If you look actually at the divide, you know, uh, Zephyr Teachout wins the entire Hudson Valley south all the way to Orange County. In Orange County, Andrew Cuomo wins by five votes. Correct. Five Which votes. Which is astounding when you think about the fact that there's, you know, 19 million people in the state of New York that you can win one county by five votes. Um, but if you look a little deeper at Orange County and you look at the specific election districts that comprise uh, Kyrgyz Joel, uh, there's the Satmar Enclave in, in, in Orange County where they are largely registered as Republicans for historical dating back to when the, the village was founded. But if you were to really look at the, uh, at those totals, you'll see that Andrew Cuomo won, got about 400 votes in those election districts and Zephyr Teachout, you know, uh, I believe is uh, under 30 votes over there. 
So clearly an enormous block in Kiryas Joel went to Andrew Cuomo. And why is this significant is because, as you pointed out, there are a lot of capital region, Hudson Valley, North Country counties that went to teach out with one glaring exception, and that's going to be Orange County. And when you look, when you're Andrew Cuomo and you want to look over at a, at a map and you want to see which counties did I win, right, you look over at the overall counties. You're not going to nitpick about specific neighborhoods, and you see that you win Orange County. Fascinating. So KJ carries the day for Andrew Cuomo. They deliver that county the math, the math, for him. In Orange County, the math clearly indicates that. I mean, the facts are, facts are the facts. The fact, well, the numbers don't lie, as they say. Yeah, I guess exactly. uh, in the in the end, that's really comes down to. And I guess uh, maybe some some of that late breaking campaigning was uh, certainly paid off and, and going there. But I guess just to get back and specifically one last in the question Eastern for you, communities is, which are not necessarily Israel voting communities. I mean, they are, but they're not. So, but certainly the the late breaking campaigning uh, drove turnout. You know, breaking Kathy Oakley to Brooklyn and upstate was very important. Okay, and the last uh, the last question was the, for you is the first question I had for Ozzy was was the strategy Andrew Cuomo's strategy of not campaigning and not engaging till the very end was that the right strategy? Is that what he is that whatever they did was that okay from your point of view? Well, it's in keeping with the way he has been governor. Right, he's not. It's not out of character for Andrew Cuomo since he took office in January 2011, where he's been very focused on letting the work and the governing drive the day. He's done very little of the uh, types of, you know, retail politicking that say a lot of uh, his contemporaries focus on over the governing. And in, if that, and with that as the model then, no, it's not um, – uh, it was a good strategy because he, he stuck to the model he's been governing he's been governing with since he took office. Okay, great. Menashe Shapiro, uh, Tusk Strategies, former Cuomo staffer, former Bloomberg staffer. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have you again in the very near future. Uh, thank you very much. Looking forward. Fantastic. This is Spin Class sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com and – here on a September 11th, 13 years after 9-11-01, and uh, want to return to an issue that we've discussed in the past, a little in-depth type of issue. Uh, we have on the line Batya Unger-Sargon, a freelance writer, lives in New York, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at B Unger-Sargon. She wrote a very interesting article on how the media gets it wrong, blaming Orthodox Jews for school district strife in Muncie. And when we talk about Muncie, we're talking about the East Ramapo School District, which is uh, Muncie and its suburbs, if you will. And we've talked about that conflict here on this show quite a bit. I think Batya's perspective is something that we need to talk about, need to understand. I think it, when the media really just doesn't seem to understand the Orthodox community. Batya, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Okay, great. So let's jump right into things. How does the media get it wrong, and what attracted you to try and dispel these uh, these myths? Um, well, the media seemed to, in everything I had read before I started looking into this story, seemed to portray the Orthodox Jewish School Board as not representing the public school community, um, as using their power in order to siphon off funds. <clears throat> in order to um, put their own special needs children into private schools and that there was lots of mismanagement and lots of cynicism and um, basically that these people who do not have children enrolled in public school have assumed power and the words, you know, taken over the school board are used over and over and over. Um, and I just, I, I thought, you know, <laughs> it's a story about a community um, with a lot of strife and I thought to myself, is this the actual story? Is this actually what's happening? You know, when you have such a powerful narrative and it's so one-sided, it obviously piques the interest of, well, what are they saying on the other side? Fascinating. So you're, as a journalist, you're trying to say that the other journalists are not, are missing something. They're not getting the story right on a very fundamental level. 
Uh, so what is it that they're missing that you found that the reporting, you know, it's one sided. It's a narrative that's not that that's kind of everybody's coming in with this with this one sided narrative that the Hasidim should not either shouldn't be in power or if they are in power, they should not be doing anything for themselves. I, I, I know that one radio journalist who covers this all the time, who covers this issue all the time, Brian Lehrer talks about the tragedy of the schools. It's a tragedy that uh, the Orthodox Jewish community is uh, on the school board there. What is it from your perspective that they're, that what are they missing? Which perspective are they missing? Are they not speaking to people? Are they not understanding? Do they not understand the facts? Do they not get into the, the budget? I mean, what, you know, why are they not being as even handed if you will. Um, well, I'm sure, I mean, I think probably, I, I didn't hear this, Brian, I heard some Brian Lara segments. I'm sure what Brian Lara meant was the tragedy of the cuts to the programming and not the, I mean, and not the tragedy that the school board is orthodox. And it is a tragedy that there were cuts to programming. It's tragic that these children are not getting a more wonderful and well-rounded education. Um, I think the answer to your question of what people have not seen is, from my perspective, there were a few things that were missing. Um, number one, this whole story is about special needs children, and I had never seen a parent of a special needs Orthodox child interviewed in the press, and I thought that's sort of an omission that really needs to be corrected. I think also um, in terms of people's values, you know, it's very upsetting to see a minority disenfranchised group not getting what we would love them to be getting. You know, that's always painful. Um, it, you speak to the parents on, of the public school children, and it's really upsetting. And I think that people perhaps have been um, influenced by those emotions that I share, you know, um, into seeing things in a certain way. Um, it's also there is a very easy and obvious, you know, scapegoat is the word that I would use. Um, although... You know, something to bear in mind is the state and um, the federal government have determined that every special needs child deserves a free and appropriate education. So the minute you have a child who um, has has, um, special needs, they are no longer a private school child. They are a public school child. So in that sense, the board actually is representative of the public school community. There are very many Orthodox children who have special needs and need special education that puts them in the public domain according to both state and federal law. So we can talk about, okay, are they actually, you know, going about getting them into the right school in a way that is in accordance with the law, and we can argue about that. But to say that the board is not representative because their children are not in public schools, I think is simply incorrect. There is even a board member who has a special needs child you know, that child certainly is part of what would be considered the public school community, even if they go to a private school, because the state and the federal government have decided that it is upon them to pay for that education. Amazing. We're talking to Batya Unger-Sargon, uh, to freelance writers. She wrote a very interesting article in the East Ramapo School District for Tablet Magazine called The Blame Game. And I'm sure as you looked into the various facts and the budgets and with regard to to the shrinking pie that exists in East Ramapo. I mean, the overall uh, pie of state aid or of money, just of money. There's less money to go around, and I guess less money creates conflict. And when you have more money, everybody's happy. So is that really what's going on here? And if so, why did you have this move by, I think it was Rockland County clergy for justice, uh, you know, to, to move to have the school board members removed. Uh, who was behind that? And, uh, and then at the same time, you had a more, I guess, uh, unifying type of coalition that was going to, I, from what I understand here, to be the crux of the issue with regard to the state aid, that the state is shortchanging the district. And because the state shortchanges the district, that is why we have this, these cuts and this tragedy, if you will, of the East Ramapo schools? You know, it was one of the only moments of dishonesty that I saw flicker um, in some of the advocates for the public school children. Most of the time, I, I really think these people are trying to do their best. 
But they would say over and over again, you know, formula change, which is the name of trying to get more funds from the state, is that they would call it a red herring. You know, why, you know, how could trying to get more money ever be a red herring? Or they would say, you know, the board has shown that they're actually saving money on a lot of the private school tuitions because the private school options are actually a lot cheaper than the public school options. And they would say, oh, don't talk to me about them. It's not about the cost. Well, if it's not about the cost and it's not about the money, what is it about? So on the one hand, they say, oh, it's segregation. And actually, um, there was a complaint filed um, that, that the, these people are segregating their children. But is it really segregating if you're not keeping people out, but actually trying to keep people in a certain place? Okay, it's also another thing that can be discussed. But it is very, it was very interesting to me that they were not interested in more money in a way. Um, it was It was much more comfortable to blame the school board for things than actually pursue the solutions that were being brought to, to bear. Now, there's been a lot of malfeasance uh, alleged in this district, but there's been actual malfeasance in many other districts throughout the state. Some very prominent ones come to mind, uh, like Roslyn, and there was there have been issues of school board members and school officials stealing money. But yet the state, the governor, has imposed a fiscal monitor on only one district. That's East Ramapo. So is that purely – I mean what is it – there must have been something that's come along. There have been allegations of the underappraisal of property, of – uh, misuse of, of property, of textbooks, of all kinds of allegations on the part of the Orthodox school board that have done things that have been inappropriate. And, you know, I guess there was some rationale for the state to impose this fiscal monitor. Did you find anything in your research along those lines? Um, I can say, first of all, there has been actual malfeasance by this board as well. There was um, an underappraised school I think it was by about $2 million. That's a big oversight. That's a real problem. So there have been also instances here of actual malfeasance that, you know. But, well, I, that was by the board or that was by the appraiser? I think it, it just uh, well, by the purchaser. Yeah. I mean, from my understanding yeah. of that is that the purchaser was the one that, that hired the appraiser. Um, it, it, the the critics say that the board were aware of it. So okay, that's fair. It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, but I think the fiscal monitor, this, it, it, if formula change were going to happen, the first thing that the state would have to do is send somebody in to do what I did, which is to look at the budgets, right? If something was actually going to change, the, the, you know, the state can't just say, oh, you're right, uh, sorry about that, sorry we stole $45 million you know, to close this budget, we're going to just give it back to you. I mean, somebody has to come in who's objective and say, I'm going to take a look at this and see if actually formula change has to happen or is going to happen. That's the way that it it looks to me. It's like the 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 way that the fiscal monitor is being understood and being read. Uh, so some people are looking at the fiscal monitor as a step in the right direction because the school board president initially wrote a letter, uh, Yehuda Weissmandel, he wrote a letter to the state actually accusing the governor of bigotry by appointing the school board monitor. So now perhaps he stepped back from that. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> you, you don't sound like you're, you're sure. It's a, so I, I'm just, I'm just curious, but let's talk for a second about cuts. And you, you point out in your article that cuts are a fact of life in schools throughout Rockland County. It's not just East Ramapo, but somehow the cuts in East Ramapo have become have become a cause celeb for people out all outside in and out of the district. Yeah, it's very interesting the way that people allow themselves to talk about Hasidim and taxes. <laughs> I mean, people have said to me over and over, Hasidim don't pay taxes. Don't you know that? Um, which, you know, is a, I think is a very... It's not racist, but it's extremely offensive. It's not true. I, I looked at a lot of the um, tax rolls. I didn't look. I didn't do a comprehensive view, but I did a, what I consider to be a sort of representative statistical analysis. They're certainly paying taxes, probably to the tune of you know more than they're actually consuming in um, costs from their community. Um, and it's interesting that despite the fact that they're paying taxes and not even benefiting from the schools. 
people feel comfortable saying, oh, they don't want to raise taxes, expecting them to raise taxes. You know, none of the districts raised taxes, even though a lot of them had um, similar cuts. A lot of them were forced to cut positions and um, to raise class sizes, a lot of the same issues. And what about and the, the neighboring districts, if you will? What Give us an idea of how... East Ramapo differs uh, demographically, socioeconomically, so much from the neighboring districts, and why all this is this strife purely made up of of a purely well, I, I hate to use the word racial because it's not racist per se, but it's mm-hmm. uh, is it is it entirely made up of a total misunderstanding of communities that just look past each other and where and they've kind of dumped a lot of the minorities, if you will, if I'm if I'm including the Hasidim as a minority into a single district in Rockland County and kind of said, okay, you guys fight it out. Um, so, so uh, East Ramapo is kind of in the center of Rockland County and it's surrounded by eight other districts and the other districts are a lot whiter, a lot richer and a lot older. Um, and East Ramapo includes these religious enclaves, you know, Muncie and Kaiser, which are very largely Orthodox and Hasidic, and it also includes Spring Valley, which is largely Haitian, African American, and uh, recently a lot of um, Latino um, and South American immigrants. So it, it looks very different. You know, the median age in Aramont, for example, in one of these sort of more white districts is 10 years higher than the median age of the United States, 47 instead of 37. The median age in Spring Valley is, you know, 25, and then the median age in Muncie, like, 19, right? So it keeps going lower and lower. You know, the, the median income in Airmont is $94,000 a year. The median income in Muncie is $36,000 a year. So East Ramapo is a lot poorer than the rest of the, um, the Rockland County School District. 78% of the children are on free or reduced lunch. So it's, it's a very different demographic than all of these other towns. Um, and I think in a way, the the way that one of the, you know, somebody told me, explained to me off the record, he said, um, and, and this is a person who works in um, one of the other districts, and he said he looks at East Ramapo and he sees, you know, the strife that's being created between these communities. It has nothing to do with the school board. It's being allowed by the politicians. You know, he kept saying to me, who's benefiting from this? You have to ask yourself, who is actually benefiting from all of this strife? You know, clearly the answer is formula change. And somehow that's not being pursued. So I think that was a very interesting perspective on it. So who is benefiting? Uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, it was a rhetorical question. He just wanted to know who's benefiting. It would have been nice if he would have provided an answer. I think he thinks that the politicians in uh, in Rockland County are um, benefiting from all of the strife and not that they have no interest to you know solve the problem because, as he put it, you know, infighting gets people off of their backs to go go vote. Well, then I guess that anticipates a question for you I was going to ask is that, is there a way out of this? Aside from, let's just assume that the state is not going to do formula change. Formula change is an incredibly complicated uh, issue. And just, I guess it pays for a second just for, for people out there to understand what the problem here is that when the state makes up state aid, it does not count private school students in that calculation. So if you have an overall assessment to the, of, of your district, uh, they divide that overall assessment by the number of students, which only includes public school students, and then they determine whether you are a high needs or a low needs district. And uh, I probably talked about this on the, on the, show before, but the best example to use is that of Mount Vernon, that uh, East Ramapo, similar size, similar type of socioeconomic level uh, as far as the median income. And and because Mount Vernon has so many public school students versus East Ramapo, which has 9,000 in the public school and 22,000 in the private school, uh, is uh, Mount Vernon gets $35 million more per year than does East Ramapo, and that's a that's a decent chunk of change. Uh, what would what do you think the district could do with thirty five million dollars? Could they solve the problem, Badia? Um, I don't even think they need thirty five million dollars. I mean, something that has not been reported in the press is that they've actually managed at the the last staff, the last board meeting I went to, they managed to restore all of the programs that had been cut. You know, it's also a question of selective reporting. You know, I think 
the current board is actually working really hard to get grants, and um, the superintendent as well has secured some grants. They got $5 million, and they're putting back all those programs. I mean, it's the kind of thing you don't hear about, right? They have a balanced budget. Despite all of this, they actually have a balanced budget, which is kind of amazing if you think about it, you know, couple the tax cap with the cuts. And, um, I mean, formula change I think would be great for East Ramapo, um, but I, I think that the board is um, working really hard. I mean, these people, they work, they put in as much time working on the school board as they do in their full-time jobs. They don't get paid. It's a volunteer um, position. They go in there. They sit there. The, they get screamed at by the community week in and week out. I mean, it's really really astounding um but i think you know i think they're in good they're in good shape right now it seems like from the last budgets that i saw they've managed to balance the budget okay batya unger sargon and i should point out to you that this uh saturday uh this american life the npr show is going to be which covers the whole country interesting stories throughout the whole country is going to be having at 1 p.m i believe uh, on Saturday is going to be having a focus full hour on East Ramapo. So perhaps they're going to, perhaps they'll get it right. Uh, obviously, uh, I won't be listening. Uh, I'll probably have to catch the podcast, but, uh, we'll see if they can integrate your perspective on this issue. Thanks you very much for giving us this, uh, real good insight into not only some of the facts about East Ramapo, but also how the media gets it wrong. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, Bhatia Agasaga, freelance writer, written in Tablet Magazine, How the Media Gets It Wrong, Blaming Orthodox Jews for School District Strife in Muncie. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. And we are going to close up the show on this September 11th. And, uh, of course, as we do, we have to talk about our knucklehead of the week. But we're also going to do our hero of the week because I think there was a hero this week, in particular, Senator Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who – uh, really did something quite uh, amazing for a politician. He was the keynote speaker at a dinner for Defense of Christians, and it was an organization formed to defend the rights of Christians uh, in the Middle East, particularly those in countries where they are being terribly persecuted and killed. If you don't need no look, lead, need look no further. Excuse me. Then what is going on in northern Iraq with ISIS, which is killing all religious minorities, including Christians? But Ted Cruz was there, and he said. If you will not stand with Israel and the Jews, then I will not stand with you. Good night and God bless. And he walked off the stage. Why did that happen? Because as he started talking about Israel and supporting Israel, he was heckled and booed. And many people in the audience, although it was said the directors that was not a majority of the audience, many people started yelling at him to get off the stage. And he felt that I'm not going to speak to this audience if they are tinged with anti-Semitism, as he said. So a hero's kudos to Ted Cruz for doing that. And I will say Texas Senator Ted Cruz, certainly known for sticking to his convictions, for being strong, and certainly a strong friend of Israel and the Jewish people. So I commend him for that. That gets us to the flip side of this, of kind of knowing your audience. Ted Cruz knew his audience, but then went ahead and when they, some didn't react properly, decided that he was going to teach them a lesson. On the other hand, we had the wife, the second lady of the United States, Jill Biden, speaking to the annual gathering of the Lions of Judah, which is the most prominent women's organization within the Federation system. I think it's women who give a very significant amount of money to the Federation system. And Jill Biden, on Sunday night at the convention of the Lions of Judah, she said, I want to everybody here to pray for a lasting peace in Gaza. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out, yes, we want peace in Gaza. Yes, we want peace. But is it – wouldn't you say that we would have a lasting peace in Israel, peace for Israel? It kind of comes across when you say, I want peace for Gaza, that you're kind of in that free Palestine type of – milieu, if you will, or that, you know, you're kind of going ahead and doing that. Maybe she didn't know she was speaking to. Maybe she just didn't kind of got it. Maybe Gaza was on her mind. Maybe the whole thing had really gotten to her. But maybe another indication of some of the feelings uh, in this administration with regard to Israel and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. I don't know. Something to keep in mind, folks. Uh, I think uh, Joe Biden, certainly a longtime friend of Israel, 
uh, has been there for many, many years on the Hill, being a friend of Israel. But Joe Biden certainly, at very least for not knowing your audience, gets the Knucklehead of the Week award. Thank you very much for joining us here on September 11th, talking about politics, hoping to take it seriously, why it matters so much on a local level, on a state level, federal level, national level. Everybody should really try and engage as much as possible. We get into campaign season. The U.S. Senate is at stake. The House of Representatives is at stake. There's a lot at stake for you, for your taxes, for Israel, and for Jews around the world in this time. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, jmintheam.org.